Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Just a year after releasing her breakout EP, Inbred, Hayden Anadonia, the 24-year-old Florida native who writes and performs as Ethel Kane, is ready to kill off her alter ego. It's a story she tells on her debut album as Kane, Preacher's Daughter, a project that entwines slowcore and stadium rock into a staggering Southern Gothic anchored by the doom of intergenerational Middle American trauma. On the heels of its release, Anadonia spoke with the fader Salvatore Mackey about the development and ultimate demise of Ethel Kane as a character, her objections to being classified as a pop act, and how she plans to continue climbing up Kane's family tree on her next record. Hayden, welcome to the fader podcast. How's it going? Hi, it's going great. How, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Preacher's Daughter has been out in the universe for about a week now. How does it feel? It feels honestly really weird. I was telling my friend that I'm staying with last night, I was like, it's very strange now that it's out because like for the past four years, this has always been kind of like my mountain on the horizon. And now that I'm past it, after four years of everything leading up to something that is now over, I'm like, what now? Like, what next? And I have to, like, throw another something as far as I can and, like, set another goal for, like, another however long in the future to have something to work forward to. Because I have this really weird thing where, like, I get really anxious and, like, restless when I don't have something, like, coming up. Like whether it's in like a week or in five years, like if, if I don't have a very clear set goal that I'm working towards, I feel kind of like I'm free falling. My brain almost is like, there's nothing between you and like the end of your life. Like up next is death. And I'm like, no, I have to, I have to put up a wall or something. And it's so dramatic, but it's like, if I don't have something to work towards, I get really out of my head, but also like too in my head. So it's it's been just really, really weird this past week, like being on this side of the record. Like I, it's, it's new emotions I've never felt before. Ugh. Well, how is Hayden doing? But also how is Ethel doing? Is she alive? Can you confirm? She's dead. <laughs> she is not doing so great. <laughs> um, but I'm doing like, okay. There's a lot of stuff going on that's like very overwhelming, but um, I'm just trying to you know, roll with it and, you know, stay above it all and not get too, you know, inundated with stuff. But yeah, it's just, it's been a very crazy week and I've been sick this week um, from like traveling. I was just in Paris and I've never left the country before. So I think, you know, that was weird on my body and just been like a lot of new things happening all at once. And so I'm just like, well, you know. And it's one thing to tend to these songs and hold them sort of near and dear to your heart. It's another thing to, you know, rip that open and suddenly be singing to a crowd that's singing them back to you. That's got to be a really weird pill to swallow, right? Like an amazing moment for sure. But did you feel overwhelmed at all? 
It was very overwhelming. Performing that album for the first time, you know, it's the biggest show that I've played so far and being sick and just like all this stuff happening at once has just been very, very strange and weird. I've honestly been on autopilot the past week. I've just been kind of like going and doing, you know, what, what I have to do and trying not to think about it too much. So probably a bunch of stuff I won't even process for a hot minute. But yeah, it's it's been fun. It's been, it's been really exciting and I've been having a good time. Thank you again so much for speaking with me. I know it's been a super hectic week, so I appreciate it even more that you're, you know, taking the time to unpack this album a little bit with me. I guess I wanted to just go back a little bit. Obviously, it's been well documented that you've been all over the United States. The last time we spoke, you were still living in Indiana, fresh off the road trip that brought us the God's Country video. And since you've moved back down south, right? You're in Alabama now? Yeah, I'm back in Alabama. So I'm wondering... Where specifically did this project begin? What was the room? Where was this town? Like, because I feel this must precede Indiana, right? Yeah, this project started back in Florida. I mean, everything that inspired this project obviously happened in my hometown, but this project, like the creation of this record, started in Florida. In this little house, the address was 724 West Brevard Street. Um, it's down the street from the Burger King and the liquor store. I lived in this little house with my best friend at the time. I was sitting on the floor with my computer. I was going through some samples, and I just found that piano sample that is in House in Nebraska. And I was like, holy crap. This is it. Like, this is something else. I was making completely different types of music at the time. But I was just like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I think I wrote House in Nebraska in, like, 10, 15 minutes. As I just, like, I just spilled out um, over this piano loop. And I still call home That house in Nebraska Well, we found each other on a dirty mattress on the second floor. While the world was empty, save you and I, where you came and I left and you left and I cried. For then on out, like it just, like Ethel Kane just kind of like, like happened. Like it just, like everything that I did seemed to just be another step in that direction subconsciously until one day I woke up and I was like, my whole closet was white dresses and my hair had grown twice as long and I had stopped coloring it. I was just leaving it my natural color and I was no longer listening to crazy heavy synth electronic music. I was listening to Nicole Dollenganger and I was listening to Grouper, and I was listening to Slow Dive, and I was listening to Def Leppard. I was listening to these artists who aren't making songs about partying in the club and doing drugs and drinking. And like I had been, I was listening to artists singing about riding across America and digging into dead animals with your hands and like just like complete different from what I'd been doing before. And I realized my inspirations had changed. A House in Nebraska, what a special song. I mean, that song has 
now existed in the Ethel Kane cinematic universe for a few years, right? Like that song actually did come out back in like 2018. And what a special thing to bring it back into the debut album and, you know, to still call home to that house in Nebraska. Has the meaning of the song or the importance of the song changed in those years since you were, you know, originally making music as Ethel Kane back then? Honestly, no, it's, it's been exactly like, it's been kind of the anchor for the whole project. Like it has been the rock that everything else has been tied to. The song really didn't change that much in those four years. And it's always been kind of what I've tethered the rest of this story to like it, that house in Nebraska. I named it that because I wanted it to be this kind of like dream fantasy escapist place that is located in Nebraska, which is like in the dead center of America. It's like at the core. It was always meant to symbolize this like central point that everything else revolves around and it has very much been that song for this record since and it's funny i saw a review they were like house in nebraska didn't even need to be on this record it was already released and it doesn't really serve a purpose on the record i was like it serves all the purpose on the record like it it is the purpose of the record it is the record like all these songs exist inside this house in Nebraska and none of this would have ha happened ever like if I wouldn't have written that song so that song is so incredibly special to me more so than probably anything I've ever written you know I've come a long way since it but I will always like I'll still call home that house in Nebraska you know it definitely feels like the north star of this project. That being said, the quest to get there sort of falls off track along the way with this character and what she endures during this, the course of this record. Talk to me how that story came together because this album came out and, you know, I did read the record started as a screenplay and now the fans, especially on Twitter, have really extrapolated the, you know, start to finish plot of it all. I'm curious, you know, to hear from you how that story sort of developed. I love a good drama. I love a good American epic. There's a very specific intersection between mundane and fantastical that I love that like really scratches an itch for me. And I feel like a lot of movies are either very fantastical, very like out there, very almost like sci-fi or like out of the realm of possibility, very fictional. And they're fun, but they're a little too fictional to be real. And then there's stories that are very mundane, very everyday life, very practical, very possible. And I'm like, they kind of bore me. So I wanted to tell a story that was like both possible and mundane, but also very like melodramatic and very over the top you know like 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 it could happen but it's also like once in a lifetime kind of like like what are the odds i wanted to take my story the things that had happened to me that i've struggled with all these things and turn it into something that felt like exciting at least you know i used to wish when i was a kid i was like well if all these bad things are going to happen to me i wish that they'd at least be interesting and like I wish they'd at least be like dramatic and like cool, but I'm just like miserable and it's boring. It's not special. It's not a movie moment. It's just, it's real and it sucks. So I was like, I want to take that and make it like, not like fun, but like engaging. So I was like, I want the story of this girl who is like 
trapped in this stifling environment and she's being stuffed into a mold that she doesn't fit in and then she has this boyfriend and he runs away and then she has another boyfriend and he's bad for her and then he dies and then she runs away and she gets kidnapped and she's in strip clubs and she's doing drugs and she gets kidnapped and eaten by her killer and it's like it's like it's like over the top but it's still very like down to earth like it's like both a caricature of America but on the underbelly, it's like got the themes of things that like really happen every day. I just wanted a dramatized version of like my life and like the things that have happened to me and the things that I used to dream about happening to me. And so this this big story came together and living in Florida, it's a hundred degrees always with a hundred percent humidity. You feel like you're in a greenhouse at all times and I was smoking a ton of weed every day. And, you know, I love slowcore music and Midwest emo music, like Tidal Fight and, you know, American football and female singers that are very, like, lazy and, like, Mazzy Star. Just, like, all these different things that I was listening to and watching at the time. And I wanted just, just overall, I had this picture of this, like, hot, uncomfortable not glamorous at all, American epic of a girl who is trying to be anything but what she's been told to be. And, you know, I, I was just like injecting all of my problems into it. Like anything that I was dealing with at the time, like bam, it went in the story. Like if I, if I was having a problem with my mom, if I was having like a hard conversation, bam, it now Ethel's having that conversation. Am I like unpacking some childhood trauma? bam, so is Ethel. If I want to go on a road trip and fall in love with a stranger, bam, Ethel's going to do that. Like I was just, you know, back before everything, when I was making music in my bedroom with zero followers, it was just a playground for me to like explore life. It was a way for me to process things in this like alternate reality of Ethel Kane. You know, four years later, it's like my life is very different, but I always told myself, I was like, you're going to finish this record went 100% to your liking, exactly how you want it, with 13 long-ass songs, a ton of reverb, a ton of whatever influences. If I went three guitar solos one after another, like wh however I wanted to structure this record, I was like, I'm going to do it for me. And so it just snowballed into this thing that was just everything I've ever wanted to do, everything I've ever wanted to try, everything I've ever wanted to be. Ethel Kane became that. And I just, it, 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 it's kind of just like gone beyond my control at this point. Now the story's gotten even bigger and, you know, I'm, I've got the next two records and there's just like, it's, it's, it's like this, it's this big like monstrosity of a project, but it will always be my project that I say whatever I want in and then put it out and be like, okay, here it is. It's, it is what it is.
Well, I'm curious how you move forward with the character now that Ethel went missing and inevitably died. Are you planning on exploring the afterlife? I know there was talk about exploring different generations of this character. How do you, I guess, trek forward when this mythology has been established? Well, I'm working backwards now. Ethel is dead. The end of the line. Some bleached flies and strangers are her making her peace from beyond the grave. So now it's time to work backwards. You know, next record is exploring her mother, exploring how her mother met her father, her mother's pregnancy with her. One of the big things that I came to the conclusion of over the course of this record is your mother might be the source of all your problems, but she's also a victim too of things that happened before you were even thought up. And that realization for me with my own mother, that kind of humanization of, you know, there are no good guys or bad guys in real life. It's just a bunch of deeply flawed people. I was like, you know, yeah, she's, uh, Ethel's on the outs with her mother and they're at odds and they have their problems, but her mother went through shit too. And then I was kind of like making the backstory for her mother to kind of help me build the world of Ethel. And then I was like, fuck it, let's like, let's go explore the mom's life. And then I was like, well, let's go even further up the family tree. Well, how does the grandmother play into this? And it just became this three generation struggle of how all these women's individual stories affect each other. And it kind of mirrors my relationship with my mother and my grandmother and how their relationship impacted me and how all their individual experiences affected themselves. And it's, it's just like everything's connected and the way people interact with each other and how we exist in each other's lives and how we affect each other's lives is so fascinating to me, the way that we cross over like that. And so I just want to explore that in as excruciating depth as possible on this record. And there's only so many things you can do in an album, you know, with lyrics. And so, you know, a lot of this story is still yet to be told through literature and film. But I have time, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a long project across multiple mediums and lots of different avenues exploring. But like, like, this is my project and I can do whatever I want with it. And I'm excited to do whatever I want with it. And like, just fully explore this, this world of Ethel Kane and her mother and her grandmother and these hopeless, hopeless women who are impossibly traumatized and, you know, perpetuators of their own sins. Um, just deeply flawed women in a deeply flawed country, you know, just everything that that entails. Have you been able to share this record with your mother and have like a conversation about it and, you know, the things that you, I guess, took from the process of making it? Oh, yeah. I mean, my mother, conversations with her inspired a lot of this record. You know, when I first started writing this, it was a big fuck you to my mom. It was like, I'm the victim. You ruined my life. I'm so traumatized. And this is all your fault. And then through conversations with my mother and addressing things that have happened, it's like humanizing and you learn to forgive and you learn that while things were done that never should have been done, she's not perfect either. And while flawed, she had her reasons. And you know, that there's just, there's, you can never fully demonize another human being. There's always, maybe not an excuse, but there's an explanation. And through growing closer to my mother as I've gotten older, and her telling me stories about her childhood and telling me stories about her when she was my age and her fears of being a mother and just all these things that she's told me and talking to my grandmother and hearing stories of her when she was my age and 
getting closer to the women in my family and learning how things that have had huge impacts in my life were set in motion long before I was ever even like conceived, you know, like just how all these things go so far back up the family tree. It has inspired a lot of this record and you know, I've I've shared this record with my mother over the course of me writing it and told her exactly what where what I how I'm feeling and what my goals are and you know, I've gotten a lot closer to her because of this record because this record has allowed me a form of self-therapy to grow closer to her and to forgive her. So it's kind of like they feed into each other, you know, like I've gotten closer with her, which has influenced the record and the record, the record has influenced me to get closer to her. It's been very, very like healing and therapeutic. And I've seen a lot of people like talk about the record and be like, damn, did you even try to be happy? Or like this level of like depression and misery and pessimism is dangerous and you should never give into it. But then it's like, the record is so depressing and dark because it's been my scapegoat. And this record has given me the opportunity in my personal life to let go and be happy and not hold on to these things anymore. And I'm in a much more positive place in my life now because I was able to kind of like exercise these feelings into this record. And this record is so dark and awful because I would rather the music be dark and awful than my like heart be that way forever. Talk to me about Gibson Girl because that was such a stark choice as a lead single and it's it's a, a track that I keep going back to. There's so much in it that I'm curious about. How did that song begin? One of the aspects of this story that I talk about a lot is like, or at least deal with subtly, is like the purity of this girl, you know, like the, the purity of being this preacher's daughter this like forced purity, this like purity that's been forced upon her that she can't quite live up to. It's like, you know, the whole Madonna and the horror complex and this like dark pit that was kind of looming in the story that I, I was trying to figure out how to handle. And it was like, you know, at this part in the story, it's like, she's like getting pimped out and she's getting kind of like ravaged by these men. And I was just feeling very frustrated with like my own relationships with men. It was like, I think I was like 21 when I wrote that song. It doesn't take long before you get tired of men wanting to have sex with you and ditch you. You know, it's it's very exhausting. And, you know, you look around and you think you're alone, but then you realize that all these women, all the, you know, like every woman on the planet, it goes through it at some point where she's like treated like a piece of meat and she's like chewed up and spit out. Even the fact that every woman goes through it doesn't change the fact that it is so like, cripplingly lonely to go through that. When I was making this song, it was like, over the, over the years, I've, I've kind of realized, I always thought that I was just very like, dominant, in charge and whatnot, like, you know, in sexual situations with men. And I'm so like, dominant and like, forward and whatnot. And then I realized, I was like, I've never been dominant. I've only ever been forward and dominant because I'm like, I would rather feel like it's something I'm giving up than have it feel like it's something being taken from me. So I've always had this vision of being like this, this Gibson girl, this extreme perfect vision of beauty with her hair done up and her waist cinched and her face perfectly flushed. And she just bats her eyes the right way and she drapes over that couch the right way and you know she's just perfect 
When in reality, they're still getting what they want and I'm still sitting there completely alone and empty at the end of the day. And I just kind of wanted that to translate into this story and her being used by these men and her trying to establish some even false semblance of like control in this scenario. And so, you know, it, it bounces back and forth in the verses. She's telling these men, you want me, you want to get my clothes off, you want to you want to hurt me, like, you know, you came from wherever it is you came from, and like, how do I know that? Well, you're all the same, like, I know you. She's like, I know you, I'm this, like, bad, sexy bitch, I'm in control, like, this isn't my first rodeo, and she's talking to these men, but then it pivots, and it slows down for the chorus, and there's, like, a tempo change, and she slips into this, like, darker, like, it, she's no longer talking to these men. It's this one man telling her. He's like, if it feels good, it can't be bad. And she's like, you're right, you're right. And then, you know, she goes and she has another one and another one and another one. And she's like, it's her trying to convince herself that she's in control of a situation where she's absolutely helpless. At the end of the song, she's just like spinning in circles. She's like, you want to love me right now? You want to fuck me right now? And these phrases go back and forth simultaneously because she gets them confused. She's like, I don't know if you love me or if you want to fuck me. She's like, I don't know. It's it's just like very blurred lines. It's very hazy. It's very sexual confusion of like you know, am I like, am I a man eater or am I getting eaten? And so that's that's kind of where this song's kind of developed as. But then we zoom out from Ethel the character into Ethel the pop star and having this be the lead single of the first project that you're putting out where there's a big audience ready to hear this and ready to consume it and ready for the next crush. That's quite a statement. There seems to be this narrative that I make pop music. Like I, I keep reading it everywhere. They're like, this is bad pop music. And I'm like, I have no idea. Whether, I think this narrative is all coming from Crush, which... God bless Crush. It was a fun song, but I honestly reject ever making that song because people are obsessed with pop music. And if they hear you do even a shred of anything pop, even like tinted, they're like, we only want this from you. And I'm like, okay. And so I was like, fuck it. I was like, you want pop music? Here's Gibson girl. Like, haha, you think you're going to get this slow, sultry, sexy, synthy, bassy album of slutty pop music. Same reason that we we chose American Teenager. It's like, here's all the pop music that you seemingly want, and then you get this backloaded album full of ballads that are eight minutes long and kind of boring and are very reliant on the lyrics and the songwriting and not the production. I don't want to become known for crazy production and I don't want to become known for pop gimmicks. I don't want to become known for the bitch who wrote I Owe You a Black Eye and Two Kisses and has kitschy lyrics. I want to be known as the girl who wrote God Loves You But Not Enough to Save You. I want to be known as the girl who wrote lyrics that 
have a story behind them and I'm not a fucking pop artist. Like I reject that wholeheartedly. And so it was kind of funny. We were like, we're going to put out Gibson girl and people are going to be like, yes, yes. Heavy bass, beat, sexy. You can play it in the wherever. And then you get this album full of ballads. And of course my label was like, put out the ones that are the most accessible. And I was like, okay. But you're a fan of pop music as well. Like you're a student of pop music. I love pop music. I've been listening to pop music my whole life. And I can't really argue that sometimes my vocal melodies are very pop. And the way that I sometimes mix my vocals and produce them is very pop. But it's like, I am not inspired wholly by pop music. I'm very much not inspired by pop music at all. Do I hear sometimes a little vocal melody in a pop song that I'm like, hey, that's really catchy. I'm like, yeah, but that's not where it's coming from. And it gets very frustrating when I so blatantly and explicitly state my influences time and time again. And I just get relinquished to a pop artist wannabe who's not quite getting it when it's apparently nobody else who's getting it because that's not what I'm aiming for at all. So why include American Teenager then on the track list? You know, that the inclusion does feel very deliberate. It's such a tonal shift. So American Teenager, it's a sense of false hope to the listener that you're going to get a pop record. And it's a sense of false hope to Ethel Kane that maybe one day it will be her year. It never will be, but maybe it will be her year someday. So, you know, you get this kind of like fake out intro where you're like, it's the windows down 80s synth pop coming of age film opening credits where it's like, things are rough, but everything's going to resolve itself by the end of the movie. And it's this false sense of hope that drives her. That is her false sense of hope that drives her. And it's that sense of hope that dwindles over the record, which is why you start with more pop. And I don't even want to call it that because I don't want people to quote me as saying that this is pop. But yeah, it's it's like doom pop at the beginning where she's got this sense of hope where it's very like upbeat and it's hopeful. It's that it's that same thing that pop music is. It's a fantasy. It's a it's a hope for a better tomorrow that she has. And it slowly disintegrates over the span of this record which ends with like doomy sludge, scary, whatever the fuck Ptolemaea is. And then you end on some piano ballads because it's like this, this record is sonically the disintegration of hope for Ethel Kane. You know, she starts off strong and she believes that she can get out from under this black cloud, but it's never going to happen. This is just the beginning of the story. Putting the record out is just the first part, like how people live with it, how those stories branch off into other people's stories. That's the beautiful thing about putting out a record like this. It goes so far beyond just the initial knee-jerk reaction of hearing an album for the first time. Are you ready to see how this mutates into whatever 
is next for Ethel Kane? I am. I'm excited to keep my ass parked down south and stay in like my little honey pot of inspiration. I'm ready to go even crazier. I'm ready to just like deep dive into this lore of this story and make whatever tickles my fancy. I'm interested to see where life takes me. Like I had a very different idea of Preacher's Daughter when I first started making it and I'm sure I'm bound to learn a lot in my personal life. You know, I'm, I'm sure I am, am bound to learn a lot about love and romance. I've just entered my first relationship ever recently in the past six months and I'm sure that's going to teach me a lot about love and intimacy and you know, all these things that I'm sure is going to influence the record. And I feel like my art imitates my life. And my life imitates my art. It's very cyclical. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just interested to see, you know, where the wind blows me and how this record comes to life. Like I, I really do feel less like an artist and more like just a scribe. And I just kind of like capture things like as they happen to me and as they pass me by. So I'm just really interested to see what the hell is in the cards and just try to scribble it all down in the best way that I can. And I guess check back in two years and we'll see where the hell this record's at. I'm just as interested in it as you are. That was Ethel Kane talking to the faders Salvatore Mackey. Ethel Kane's new album, Preacher's Daughter, is out now via Daughters of Cain. This week's episode of The Fader Interview was engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the new live radio app, AMP. You can download it from the App Store and check out our shows with the access code FADERONAMP. That's all one word. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.